So Matthew 9, 1 to 17. Jesus stepped into a boat and crossed over and came to his own town. Some men brought to him a paralyzed man lying on a mat. When Jesus saw their faith, he said to the man, Take heart, son. Your sins are forgiven. At this, some of the teachers of the law said to themselves, This fellow is blaspheming. Knowing their hearts, Jesus said, Why do you entertain evil thoughts in your hearts? Which is easier, to say, Your sins are forgiven, or to say, Get up and walk? But I want you to know that the Son of Man has authority on earth to forgive sins. So he said to the paralyzed man, Get up, take your mat, and go home. Then the man got up and went home. When the crowd saw this, they were filled with awe, and they praised God, who had given such authority to man. As Jesus went on from there, he saw a man named Matthew sitting at the tax collector's booth. Follow me, he told him. And Matthew got up and followed him. While Jesus was having dinner at Matthew's house, many tax collectors and sinners came and ate with him and his disciples. When the Pharisees saw this, they asked his disciples, Why does your teacher eat with tax collectors and sinners? And on hearing this, Jesus said, It is not the healthy who need a doctor, but those who are ill. Go and learn what this means. I desire mercy, not sacrifice. For I have not come to call the righteous, but sinners. Then John's disciples came and asked him, How is it that we and the Pharisees fast often, but your disciples do not fast? Jesus answered, How can the guests of the bridegroom mourn while he is with them? The time will come when the bridegroom will be taken from them. Then they will fast. No one sews a patch of unshrunk cloth on an old garment, for the patch will pull away from the garment, making the tear worse. Neither do people pour new wine into old wineskins. If they do, the skins will burst, the wine will run out, and the wineskins will be ruined. No. They pour new wine into new wineskins, and both are preserved. This is the word of the Lord. Well, this morning we are continuing our series through Matthew 8 to 10, seeing how Jesus conducted his mission in the world. Uh, What he did when he came down from the Sermon on the Mount, on the mountaintop, uh, from his teaching authoritatively, and came into the world uh, acting authoritatively. And in chapter 9, we see how Jesus kind of prioritized his mission, as it were. I think we find some key principles that will help us as we think about what it is for our church to be on mission. So I'm just going to pray to begin with and ask God for his help as we think about these verses this morning. Father, we want to see clearly what you have put for us here. We want to behold what the Lord Jesus is teaching, and we want to put it into action in our lives. And so We need the help of your spirit to open our eyes, to make our minds attentive, to make our hearts pliable. 
so that we can follow you as you ask us to. So please help us, we ask in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen. Well, what do you think is the biggest problem facing Hong Kong today? What is the biggest problem facing Hong Kong today? Is it the coronavirus? Is that the issue? Certainly, if you read the news over the last week or, or two, you would think that maybe. You know, my friends and family across the world are asking, is everything okay? Um, maybe you're getting the same messages. My parents were planning to come in just a, a couple weeks' time. They've decided to cancel that trip. And I think rightly so, but uh, it's a big issue. And I guess um, if you have been thinking about the virus, you have been thinking about some of the other implications as well, financial implications perhaps. If you're a family, if you have uh, young children at home, school-aged children, you've got to figure out what to do with them for the next month or so. And I wish you luck in that. But... Um, it is a big problem, but is, is it the biggest problem? What about the looming political unrest in the city? It, you know, it seems like it could just reemerge at any time. There are these little uh, squabbles that are going on in the streets still, even if we don't hear about them as much. Is that the biggest problem? It does cause real anxiety, real depression in the people of this city, alongside the financial hardships. Or maybe, you, maybe for you, you think on a more personal scale. Now, you can't speak for the city as a whole, but for you, it's health. Uh, the health of uh, yourself or a loved one. Or maybe, maybe it's a strained family relationship, and that is just the biggest thing on your radar. Or it could be simple question of how you're going to pay the bills this year. And those are real problems. Uh, those are big problems. They're deeply felt and weigh heavily. And in all these problems, those of us who believe in a God are, are bound to, on occasion, come to him and say, oh, what are you doing about this stuff? Where are you on this? We, we think if only God would deal with these big problems, we could get on with our life and, and just kind of serve him as we need to and, and live a, a flourishing life, live the life we're meant to live. If only he would deal with these big things, we could rejoice and thrive. But I think in our reading this morning, we see that our biggest problems are not necessarily our most obvious. And I think the good news is that Jesus comes to deal with our ultimate needs, not necessarily our obvious ones. I'm sure that's what the paralyzed man and his friends were thinking as they came to see Jesus, that we have this obvious need. They, they had heard about his miracles. Um, they had perhaps even seen some of them. This is happening in Capernaum. So Jesus had just been there in chapter 8. He had gone across the lake and met a demoniac, and then come back. He's back in Capernaum, where he had done all these miracles. He had healed the centurion's servant. He had um, healed Peter's mother-in-law. Many had come to him on that day, and he had healed and cast out demons. So he was well-known in this town. And so these men, 
uh, carried their friend to see him, knowing that he could do amazing things, thinking finally somebody can do something about our mate's biggest problem. And in verse 2 we read, Some men brought to him a paralytic lying on a mat. And when Jesus saw their faith, he said to the paralytic, Take heart, son, your sins are forgiven. I can only imagine what those friends and that paralyzed man must have been thinking. They must have been astonished. They must have been confused. They must have been maybe even upset, do you think? It must have seemed to them that Jesus completely missed the point. You know, we carried him in on a mat, Jesus. That wasn't for our own fun. We didn't bring him to you for any other reason than he's paralyzed. It would have meant that he couldn't work, and so he would have to beg for a living to survive. It would have meant that he had no chance for romance or a family because nobody would allow their daughter to marry such a man at that time. And he would have been religiously excluded as well because those who are lame cannot enter the temple courts. They must stay outside. It, it negatively affected every single area of his life that he was paralyzed. And yet when Jesus saw him, his first response was not, take heart, son, your legs are healed. No. It was, take heart, your sins are forgiven. Uh, what are we to make of that? Well, I think at least this, that while physical needs are obvious, spiritual needs are ultimate. How do we engage in Christian mission like Jesus engaged in his mission? Well, first of all, I think we need to recognize that, that Christian mission is not all about meeting obvious needs. You know, Christians, they give money to the poor, they, they care for the elderly, they run after school clubs. They're, they're nice to co-workers, they're involved in their children's schools, they are contributing members of their communities, and all those things are brilliant things to do. They're absolutely important to do, but unless and until we address ultimate spiritual needs of the people around us, we're not engaged in Christian ministry. Do you see? We, we cannot be good witnesses for Christ until we name Christ. And people will never receive his forgiveness if they don't know he's offering forgiveness to them. We need to be ready and we need to be willing, and we need to be able to point people beyond their obvious needs to see their ultimate ones. So that means people need to know that they are safe from God's judgment far more than they need to know that they're safe from the coronavirus. People need to know that their eternal home with God is secure much more than that the city is secure. 
people need to know that God has chosen us before the foundation of the world as his children much more than they need to know that their families are at peace. Not that those things are unimportant, but what is of ultimate importance? And it's only when those ultimate needs are met that people can really begin to take heart, as Jesus said. They can take heart and begin to feel hope no matter what the circumstances are. Because if I can cure your illness, if I can cure the, the cancer maybe that, that you have, and you live for many more years, well, you live for many more years, but you still die. If I can pay your bills this year, well, what about your bills next year? But if I can offer you the good news of Jesus' unimaginable love for you displayed on the cross, then in life or death, in poverty or riches, in Hong Kong or, or Wuhan or wherever else you might be, you will be secure. But Jesus knew that People need to know that what he offers is true. Which is why the teachers of the law were upset. They said at this, this fellow is blaspheming in verse 3. Now how could they know that this forgiveness that Jesus offered was real or not? Now, the truth is that they couldn't know if it was real or not. Because you can't see forgiveness of sin. It's much easier to say your sins are forgiven than it is to say, get up and walk. But it's much more difficult, actually, to forgive someone's sins because God alone can forgive sins. Now, that's why they say Jesus is blaspheming. He's saying that he can speak for God when he says he can forgive sins. But so that they would believe that greater miracle forgiveness of sin, he does the lesser miracle, healing of paralysis. He says this, but so that you may know that the Son of Man has authority on earth to forgive sin. Then he said to the paralytic, get up, take up your mat and go home. And the man got up and went home. And when the crowd saw this, they were filled with awe, and they praised God, who had given such authority to men. You know, make no mistake, Jesus has authority over the obvious needs of our life, and that's why it's right and good to uh, pray for miraculous things, miraculous healings, and so forth. It's good for Christians to provide for the obvious needs of people. He healed the sick. He calmed the storm. He, he cast out demons. He raised the dead because he wanted us to see his authority. But why did he do it? So that we would believe in his authority to do what we can't see. Forgive sins. Make right with God. Give everlasting life. So that we would believe that he had authority over the more difficult things of judgment forgiveness of eternity. 
And our mission as Christians necessarily means helping people to lift their eyes from their obvious needs, not ignore their obvious needs, not downplay their obvious needs, but to lift their eyes from them to their ultimate needs, needs of forgiveness. So that's the first thing I'd like you to see from these verses. But the second thing is this, that Jesus came to call sinners and not the righteous. If Jesus came primarily to offer forgiveness, then that means that he came to those who need forgiveness. In verse 9, Jesus comes across somebody who would have been considered unforgivable, a tax collector. Verse 9 says this, as Jesus went on from there, he said to a man named Matthew, sitting at the tax collector's booth, follow me, he told him. And Matthew got up and followed him. It's important to know that tax collectors in the New Testament time were hated. They were um, agents of the Roman Empire, this occupying force in Israel. And religious people in Israel would have seen them as traitors to their people and traitors to God. How dare you work for the people that are oppressing God's people, they would think. And to make matters worse, they were known to charge people more than the going tax rate, more than the Romans commanded, and then they would pocket the difference for themselves and, and build extensions on their homes and, and buy nice cars and that sort of thing. The repeated use of the phrase tax collectors and sinners throughout the, Old or throughout the New Testament rather, will show you exactly how they were seen. The lowest of the low, down with the, the thieves, the prostitutes, whoever else were the tax collectors. And yet Jesus turns to Matthew, a tax collector, and he says, follow me. Now, why would he call Matthew? Last week, if you were here, you, you would have seen him turn away a teacher of the law who said to him, I want to follow you. And Jesus said, you're not ready. And yet here, he invites a tax collector who's just sitting at his desk. It doesn't even seem from, from what the scripture says that he was aware of Jesus passing by. He was at his tax booth collecting his taxes. And Jesus is passing by is the gist of it. And Jesus says, follow me. We aren't given any reason why Jesus would choose this guy. And so it seems to me that the reason Jesus chooses this guy is he chooses him to be a trophy of his grace. Calling a man who was despised by society, who was morally suspect, who was religiously ignorant, it shows that there was nothing in this guy attractive for uh, the people around him that made him attractive to Jesus. Nothing in him made him the one that Jesus chose, but Jesus' undeserved kindness is shown in choosing him. Purely his undeserved kindness. And how does somebody respond to that irresistible grace when Jesus calls? Well, they respond like Matthew did. Matthew got up and followed him. Now, Jesus' calling of a tax collector 
as one of his disciples. Now that would have been scandalous enough, but then he goes and he eats with this tax collector in his home, along with his low-life friends. While Jesus was having dinner at Matthew's house, many tax collectors and sinners came and ate with him and his disciples. And when, the, when the Pharisees saw this, they asked his disciples, why does your teacher eat with tax collectors and sinners? The Pharisees, upstanding religious people of the day, they were absolutely appalled. And, and so, you know, no respectable rabbi would be in a, ha a home of a tax collector in the first place, much less eating with that rabble. And so they do what self-righteous people always do. They, they look down on everyone else there, and they, they tried to make them feel ashamed. And they whispered to one of Jesus' disciples, why does your teacher, not my teacher, why does your teacher eat with tax collectors and sinners like you? Why is he hanging out with rubbish like you? And on hearing this, Jesus said, it's not the healthy who need a doctor, but the sick. But go and learn what this means. I desire mercy, not sacrifice. For I have come to call, I have not come, rather, to call the righteous, but sinners. Again, Jesus uses that physical reality, a reality we're all too aware of at the moment, that Doctors are present for sick people. They, they come to heal sick people. Healthy people have no need of a doctor. And just like doctors come to make sick people healthy, Jesus comes to make sinners righteous. Now that's what he came to do. And so if you believe you're righteous before God, like the Pharisees did, they, they thought, you know, God approves of us. We're doing everything that we need to do. And with that attitude, Jesus hasn't come for people like that. He hasn't come for people that believe they're righteous. He's not suggesting that the Pharisees actually are righteous. No, there's no one righteous. No, not one, according to the Scripture. But the Pharisees thought they were righteous. So Jesus says, I haven't come to you. And I think that's so key for us to understand as individuals and as a church. Absolutely key for those who think they're healthy and those who know that they're ill. For those of us who think we're spiritually healthy and we can do it on our own, that we're doing just fine, thank you very much, I don't need forgiveness, I don't need church, I don't need... Uh, anything that Jesus has to offer, well, Jesus, Jesus won't bother with you. He hasn't come for you. We can keep on pretending that we don't have a problem. We can keep on pretending that we don't need help and, and that we can handle things on our own, but sin will eat away at us, and eventually it will kill us because, as Romans 6 says, the wages of sin is death. We might be able to fool ourselves. I doubt we'll be able to fool the people around us. And we certainly won't be able to fool God at the judgment. 
But if we know that we're sick, if we know that we cannot cure ourselves of the sin sickness in us, that we need Jesus' help, well then Jesus has come for us. And we don't have to worry that we can't fix ourselves or beat ourselves up when we fail. We don't have to fret about the, the things we've done bringing God's judgment on us. What a relief that is for me. What a relief that should be for you. Because it means if you know that you're a sinner, then Jesus has come for you. Dr. Jesus will treat you. He will cure you. He's promised that he will not reject any sinner that comes to him for forgiveness. For the wages of sin is death, says Romans 6, but the, the free gift of God is eternal life in Christ Jesus our Lord. How can he heal us? It sounds like a good offer, but how can he make such an offer? Because at the cross, he took our sickness on himself. Isaiah the prophet says this, that he was pierced for our transgressions. He was crushed for our iniquities. The punishment that brought us peace was on him. And by his wounds, we are healed. He can take our sickness into himself and deal with it and leave us healthy and righteous before God. And you know, that is such good news as we go out in mission to reach the people around us. It means that everyone we meet who knows that they are spiritually ill, who knows that they are broken, who knows that they've failed, everyone we meet like that can be healed. There is no one too far gone, no one beyond the grace of God to receive the mercy of God. The sinful can be made righteous. And that's the message of hope that we get to share with the world. The world has a picture of the church being a place where um, self-righteous people gather to pat themselves on the back and, and to applaud one another, but that is not the case. Jesus wants nothing to do with people like that. He, he wants everything to do with people who know they're sinful, who know they're broken, and he wants to heal them. What good news as we go out to do the Christian mission in our area. So let's pray and give thanks to God. Father, we thank you that all that we can offer you is our brokenness, and yet you give us everything we need to be healed. We offer you our sin. Jesus offers us his righteousness. We give you our failures, and you make us whole. Father, I pray that our hearts would rejoice about that this morning and this week. 
that we would be absolutely secure in your love for us. And that as we go out into a world that knows nothing yet of your love for them, as we meet people and interact with people who perhaps know what's wrong with them, but they don't know that there's a cure for them, we pray that you would give us words to speak and compassionate hearts for them, that we might carry the message of your healing touch. We pray it in Jesus' name. Amen.